Ontology, the Waystation of Red-Pilled Sanity Written by William Leo Translated by Deep L and a Human Read for you by Ginny, Arya and Guy All Bots The Reshaping of the World Order After the First World War Part 7 Based on what I just said, everyone is already very clear that the Chinese Communist Party, like the Feng Yuxiang regime or the Kuomintang regime, was founded under the direct influence and interference of the Soviet Union from its birth. It was impossible for the party to be free of a strong pro-Soviet clique. People like Wang Ming who openly challenged Mao Zedong with the support of the Soviet Union were only one of them. In fact, Zhou Enlai, Deng Xiaoping, and most of the leaders and cadres of the Communist Party of China had strong Soviet connections. As early as in the era of France, let us not forget that France was the main bridgehead for Soviet intervention in Europe. A large number of Communist Party cadres studying in France had closer relations with the Soviet Union than with Mao Zedong. If Mao Zedong had decided to take independent diplomatic actions that were not conducive to the Soviet Union's international chess game in the early 1950s, before his wings were full, he would probably have shared the fate of other early leaders of the Communist Party. As soon as these early leaders showed the slightest signs of infidelity to the Soviet Union, they were politically, and even physically annihilated. As a cautious and shrewd politician, Mao did not take risks in this regard. I think, for his own sake, he was right. Even if the Korean War, as Xinjihua or some people argue, was detrimental to China's national interests and caused China to suffer a 20-year blockade by the West, it was at least beneficial to Mao Zedong's personal security and political interests. If he had failed to do so, he would have put his own leadership position in the party in serious danger. But we should not regard Mao Zedong as a lackey of the Soviet Union. After the Nationalist Party retreated to Taiwan, out of malice, it portrayed Mao Zedong as a pure Soviet lackey. First of all, Mao Zedong was dependent on the Soviet Union in his early years, like all other Communist Party members who were sponsored by and worked for the Soviet Union. Mao Zedong was no exception. He was doubtless affiliated to the Soviet Union. But among all the people who depended on the Soviet Union, he belonged to the type who were only loyal on the outside, but not fully subordinated in secret. He dared not oppose the Soviets when his own strength was inadequate. After he became powerful enough, having received a lot of aid from the Soviet Union and completed the first five-year development plan, his rebelliousness gradually revealed itself. Back then, other senior leaders such as Liu Shaoqi and Lin Biao had no such ambitions. If the leader of the Chinese Communist Party had been Wang Ming, undoubtedly he would have always remained an apprentice to the Soviets. If people like Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping had been in power, the deterioration of the Sino-Soviet relationship in the 1950s and 1960s might not necessarily have occurred. Their obedience and loyalty to the Soviet Union far exceeded that of Mao Zedong. From Mao Zedong's standpoint of view, and the political dynamics of the Chinese Communist Party, 
the Cultural Revolution and the anti-Soviet movement were not so much for the sake of communism ideology as they were initiated by Mao to eliminate the pro-Soviet forces. What's the so-called anti-revisionism after the 1950s? Anti-revisionism was actually anti-Soviet. Looking at it through the lens of power struggles, the true nature of these movements was that after he himself had solidified his leadership within the party, Mao Zedong gradually felt that the ruling faction of the Communist Party, that was heavily influenced and manipulated by the Soviet Union was no longer suitable for his needs. He wanted to build a team that was loyal to himself alone, and no longer allegiant to the Soviet Union and internationalism. Besides, it was not safe to let those old founding members stay close to him. He had to find a way to get rid of them, which was why Liu Shaoqi and those like him had to die. Only from this angle could you understand the rationale of the Cultural Revolution. Mao wanted to groom purely localized Chinese cadres to replace the former overseas students who returned from the Soviet Union and the veteran Communist Party cadres groomed by the Soviet Union so that he can achieve complete security and a true dictatorship. As a shrewd politician, he was certainly right to have such a plan. Although of course, it meant scourge for China all over again such things as national interest are never a consideration for politicians who are eager for quick success. If I were in the same position, that is, for the so-called abstract national interests or world peace, I would have to put myself in a dangerous situation, which would even lead me to a fate similar to that of Chiang Kai-shek, I would not accept it. I am definitely willing to sacrifice all the people as long as I can defeat my opponents in the party and be safe. Well, that's what we have to talk about later. In the period of the Korean War, Mao Zedong was in such a position that he had to demonstrate with enthusiasm that, I am loyal to the Soviet Union, I am devoted to the world revolution, and I am more faithful than Zhou Enlai, more reliable than Liu Shaoqi, and more committed than anyone else in the party. Internationally, I am more trustworthy than the Workers' Party of Korea, more dependable than Ho Chi Minh, and more obedient to Stalin than all other leaders of the communist parties. In this way, his status in China and within the international communist community could be sufficiently consolidated. In order to substantiate this facade of fidelity, participation in the Korean War was a must. Although the sacrifices of the Korean War were colossal, it had at least gained the return of Lushuan Port, which was something the Soviet Union absolutely refused to give back to Chiang Kai-shek and the first five-year construction plan. In the eyes of the Soviet Union, China was, without doubt, a Judas. In the 1920s and 1930s, in order to subvert China, the Soviet Union had already tightened its belt and starved its own people to death. In the 1950s, to aid China, it went further because China was not an Eastern European country. The Soviets took to robbery and ransacking in East Germany. Germany was in itself a highly industrialized country where the Soviets found a lot to take away from and made a huge fortune. But China was different. Most of China was very backward. Even though the Soviet industry was very backward compared to the US and the international standards, it was a bit more advanced than China at the time of Chiang Kai-shek. In order to aid China's big projects, the Soviet Union had to once again bleed itself. 
What happened was the same as China's assistance to the Communist Party of Vietnam in the 1950s and 1960s. After the situation of China was improved, and the first thing Mao Zedong did after he received these resources was to turn against the Soviet Union. This is the result of the Soviet Union's painstaking efforts to manage the Far East for decades. Quite an ironic turn of events. If the Soviets had never meddled with the Chinese affairs in the 1920s and allowed China to be under the rule of the Beiyang government or the rule of the Chiang Kai-shek government in the 1930s, then we can expect that the Beiyang government would never have tried or been able to unify China. Even if the Chiang Kai-shek government did have such an ambition, its ability to unify China was not much stronger than the current Burmese military government. China would definitely have been a divided land. Maybe the southeast area will gradually become a country like Malaysia or Thailand, but there would definitely be a large number of divided regions in the interior, which would be enough to ensure the hegemony of the Soviet Union in the Asian continent. But precisely because it supported the Chinese Communist Party to overthrow the Beiyang government and the nationalist government and achieved China's reunification, it instead created a terrible and powerful enemy on its eastern border. The Chinese don't pay much attention to this view, but Soviet historians generally believe that China severely consumed the Soviet Union's national power on the eastern border after the 1970s, overburdened the Soviet Union, and made a considerable contribution to the collapse of the Soviet Union. The battles of the previous decades and the practice of Machiavellianism incurred the mysterious karma of shooting oneself in the foot. So in this sense, the victory and defeat of international politics are really hard to say. Thank you for listening. This is a podcast series produced by Luminous Society. Luminous Society provides you with an alternative historical narrative.